0: How do we keep the faith alive and pass it on to the next generation? The faith must, in fact, be kept alive in our lives if we are going to pass it on to the next generation. Otherwise, we just pass on something that is dead. We've been studying 1 Timothy, a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, who had been sent to Ephesus to deal with false teachers and their false teaching. And in our study, we've seen a number of principles that I have suggested lead us to answer as to how we are to keep the faith alive and pass it on. In chapter four, we saw two such principles. The first is that we are to realize that we live between the time of Jesus' incarnation and his return. And if you weren't here when we went through this, you might well wonder, so what? What is the big deal? Well, there are those in our society and perhaps any given society in history who think or believe that theirs is the last generation, that this, the end of the world is right around the corner. In our time, we have, as we looked at, the post-apocalyptic books or stories and movies, preppers, uh, zombie movies and shows, and Christian prophecy. Um, not all, but certainly certain, certain prophetic views in which non-believers are almost viewed as non-human, as zombies who will be destroyed And as I mentioned, the one thing I see that they all have in common is beyond the belief that the fact they believe that the end of civilization is right around the corner is a lack. One might say a total lack of love of one's neighbor. In various stories, there are love stories, but there is no general love of one's neighbor. Preppers are preparing their families. They don't plan to share with others, even arming themselves to if they have to kill others to protect their food supply. And prophetic views that point to one's survival while everyone else will simply be toast. What if these things don't happen in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our children? Thinking that is so selfish and devoid of love ones of one's neighbor cannot be right. In the beginning, in the first chapter, we are called on, we are commanded to love our neighbors, even in the last days, the time between the incarnation and the second coming of Jesus. We should not allow ourselves or in talking to the next generation, a panic or despair that is due to the circumstances. And more than that, we should not allow our circumstances ever to allow us or to think it's okay to no longer love our neighbor, that we can abandon the love of our neighbor. Something I mentioned last week by way of review, and um, I did want to review, revisit briefly today because I really think it's important. And that that gratitude and prayers may be seen in saying grace before a meal. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, Paul writes the following to answer the false teaching, telling people to abstain from certain foods. If you look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And As I mentioned here, we see at least four things, that God is the creator, That creation is good, that it is to be received with thanksgiving and consecrated by the word of God in prayer. As I said, what comes to mind for me is saying grace before a meal. And I think in praying and giving thanks before we eat or before a family eats is acknowledging what Paul is saying is true. That God is the creator and creation is good and we are to give thanks the Christian practice of praying before a meal reflects one's view of reality. As I said, it can become monotonous, mundane, um, prosaic, tedious, a ritual that, you know, before we eat, we have to say certain words. Um, But I would suggest to you that giving thanks before a meal, in fact, is a profound act. And I think, For those who have children, it says far more to your children than you may realize. It tells them that God is the source of all things. Yes, mom and dad may have had to work and earn money so they could go to the grocery store and buy the food and somebody cook, But this all came from God. And therefore, gratitude is the appropriate response. The second principle we saw in chapter four, the eighth principle, is that we are always to be in training And we are to model the truth of the gospel. In verse number six, Paul writes to Timothy as one who is in training. The ESV has it being in training in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. It it um, indicates ongoing action. Paul isn't saying to Timothy, "Okay, you've been to seminary. You've got your training. You have been trained. Rather, he is saying, you are in the process of being trained. It is something that we will do by God's grace until the day of our death. Being trained in the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Paul's point is that like an athlete, Timothy is to keep himself in vigorous training. And Timothy is to model the truth. If you look at verse number 12, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy is to model the gospel in these virtues. And it is to be rooted in scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. And then Paul ends with the difficult, these difficult words. Watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's like, well, I I thought we were saved by the grace of God, and and Paul seems to be going in a different direction here. I think Paul is bringing together the two things he's talked about, training, watch and persevere, and modeling. If you do this, as you have been instructed. The saving yourself and others, Paul is making a point that what this whole series is actually about. We are to continue living our lives as those who have been called by God to the end of our lives. You should ask yourself, at what point in my life do I cease being the child of God? How you answer that question will provide the answer to the next question, and that is, at what point do I cease living or behaving like a child of God? If we are the child of God, the children of God, to the end of our life, then in fact we are always to be living this way until the end of our life. <clears throat> I remember a, a well-known preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in, in London, that one of the things he said after he had retired from the pulpit um, was, he said, I want to finish strong. And I, I don't think this is a thing of ambition. It's like there's a, a, maybe a fear or a tendency to say, well, I've come to the end of my Working days, perhaps, or I am in the, the last years of my life. And so um, Christian virtues and, and the things that are required of a Christian, you know, I, I'm, I, these are no longer to be a part of my life. And Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, absolutely not. That as I was in training and modeling in the pastorate, that I want to continue to do that until the day that I die. Now we come to chapter 5, and I've said this a number of times because when we study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, there are always portions that I would rather skip, and for the most part, I'd like to skip chapter 5 because it has, it is, in fact, one of the most difficult parts of this letter. One author uses the word puzzling. But having said that, I, I think, in fact, it has a lot to teach us, and it will provide us with two additional principles for passing the truth on to the next generation. Let's look at the first two verses first. And these, I think, provide sort of a transition from chapter four to what will come in chapter five. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. The ninth principle I would suggest to you is that we are to recognize each other as family and to treat each other accordingly. I'll try to elaborate on that, uh, because some people, if I say uh, treat your brothers and sisters in Christ as you treat your family, that might not be a good thing. Um, what does the scripture say about how we are to treat one another? It is no stretch that we should see each other as brothers and sisters, because, in fact, we are the children of God. The question of how we are to deal with one another, I think, is something we may have failed to take into account for at least two reasons. In Paul's day versus the second will be in our day. In Paul's day, the gospel was when the pagans heard it was extremely liberating. It, in fact, was a reordering of reality from Galatians three. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Then verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I think it is hard for us to appreciate how radical verse number 28 is. It seems to say that ethnic differences are set aside. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. Class differences are set aside, slave or free. Gender differences are set aside, that is, male or female. Now, all things being equal, but we're human. When we come out of slavery, and we see this even with Israel as they come out of Egypt, you go from slavery to freedom, and, and there's a tendency to maybe go too far in that freedom. And we see this, I think, in Paul's other writings, um, In 1 Corinthians, the issue of gender differences, I find it interesting that in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, when he writes this, similar to what he writes in Galatians 3, he leaves something out. Let me read to you. This is 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all, all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Did you catch what Paul did not say to the Corinthians that he said to the Galatians? He said, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. What about the male or female part? Well, Paul did not want to say that, because if you go back a chapter to chapter 11, um, The Corinthians had really messed up big time in this. You have women who are dressing like men and men who are trying to dress like women. Because they had thought, listen, if in Christ it doesn't matter what you are, then if you're a man, you can dress like a woman. If you're a woman, you can dress like a man. If you're Jewish, you can act like a Gentile and vice versa. And if you're a slave, you can act as though you're free. There are limits on that, however, because the person who owns you may not be too agreeable to that. What about economic issues? Later on in 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, if you look at verses 1 and 2, he says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. So here, Paul is saying, okay, in Christ there's neither slave nor free. But if you are a slave, and you work for your master, the person who owns you is a believer, you can't say, well, they're a brother, or they're a sister. And so, I can do whatever I want, because it's it's this completely egalitarian thing that we find in the church. This is not the case. So the question is, how are you supposed to behave? If in fact... Ethnic differences are set aside. Class differences are set aside. Gender differences are set aside. How are you supposed to act? The second problem, I think, and that deals in our day, and that is we live in a society of radical egalitarianism. And so we may read what Paul writes about no class differences, no economic differences, no ethnic differences, and put it into our the way we think and I think come up with something that he would not recognize. One of the things I think that marks uh, Americans is this this radical egalitarianism. And on, on the one hand, I don't think that's necessarily bad um, that anyone uh, who is a citizen can aspire to political office, um, can start a business. I mean, all we have, you know, if you're born into a family of butlers, you don't have to be a butler. It's not a class system. Um, and there's there's things about that that are quite wonderful. On the other hand. Uh, there are certain things that I think we sort of drop the ball on, and that is in terms of age differences. And this is what comes up here in these first two uh, verses. Um, Paul tells Timothy that you are to treat an older man as though he is your father, the younger man as though he is your brother, an older woman as your mother, and a younger woman as your sister. What does that mean? Because in certain families, that would not be a nice thing. So, what is intended? Well, I would look to the Old Testament. I think the Old Testament gives us instructions as to how we are to deal with those who are older than us. Beginning with the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. But there are other commandments that, on the face of it, seem rather difficult uh, to get our minds around. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Exodus 21, 17. In Leviticus 20, if anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, and his blood will be on his own head. Going back to Exodus, Exodus 21, anyone who attacks his father or his mother must be put to death. Well, living when and where we do in an egalitarian society, uh, this may sound very harsh and unreasonable, even barbaric. But then I would point to another verse, also in Leviticus. Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. What we find in the Old Testament law is that there are age differences. And those who are older than us are to be treated with respect. And part of that is, if nothing else, in the physical act of standing I don't know that that's necessarily something we must do today, but there must be some some demonstration of respect that this person is older than me. And I think this is what Paul has in mind as he writes to Timothy. Just because Timothy is the guy that Paul sent in and he's supposed to clean up the mess, doesn't mean that he can treat people older than him as though they are younger than him. And even if they were younger than him, he is to treat them with respect as well as brothers and sisters. So the principle that we learn is that we are to recognize that we are family, but we are also to treat each other accordingly. As brothers and sisters, but perhaps as fathers and mothers. Those who are older than us are to be shown respect. I must tell you, even as I say these words, and in this culture it sounds quite strange. Because aren't we all one in Christ? Aren't we all the same? Um, why, why do we have to do this? Again, the Old Testament law, we are to show respect for those who are older than us. And I think we are to show respect to those who are younger than us. We are to treat them as brothers and as sisters. We are part of the household of God. We need to recognize that and we need to act accordingly. Then at the end, if you notice at the end of verse number two in the NIV, it has with absolute purity. And I find it intriguing. I think it actually opens the door to the next issue, which deals with widows and elders. I think Paul gives us verses one and two to prepare Timothy for what he's about to say in what is not uh, an easy passage, but certainly deals with the issues that Timothy has been there, uh, sent there to fix. You can follow along as I read. I'll read the rest of the chapter. Um, We won't look at the last five verses today, but I I want to read uh, the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse number three. Give proper recognition to those who are widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, those should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in need, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. The Lord willing, we will look at the last five or six verses next Sunday. But what we've looked at beginning in verse number three raises a number of questions. And the first one that comes to mind is, why is it here? I would think it would be more appropriate, particularly the part about the elders, to be in chapter three, because there he's talked about the qualifications of elders. Um, So why is it here? And why does Paul deal with widows and elders in the same passage? Why does he spend so much time on widows? Did you notice that from verse three to verse sixteen? The majority of this passage deals with widows. And what is the list that is mentioned in verses 9 and 11? There are other questions, I'm sure, but as we deal with this, I would suggest two lines of thought that might help us begin to answer our questions. The first is, I've mentioned and I would remind you that this letter is corrective by nature rather than instructive. Timothy has been sent to Ephesus because there is a problem. Paul is writing to Timothy because there is the problem. Therefore, while he gives some instructions, the, the, the primary goal is correction. It is the primary purpose. And from what we see here and what has come before, there are two groups in the church that are causing problems. Widows and elders. It is the elders who are giving false teaching. They are false teachers. And the women or the people who seem to pay attention to them are the widows. And so Paul deals with both of them. He seeks to cro- correct the problem here in this chapter. Widows haven't been mentioned up to this point. elders have in the first chapter, I mean, right off the bat, because we are told that there are false teachers and it is the elders who are supposed to teach. And so, I mean, it's not that hard to figure out that Paul is dealing with the problem of Elders. But what about widows? Chapter 2 seems to hint at this. If you want to look at this in, uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearl or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But a woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. If you see this letter as corrective and you see the widows as the problem, then what he writes in chapter 2 absolutely makes sense. That he wants them to act in a, with propriety, uh, with modesty, people have tended to read chapter 2 as this is all women at all time, that Paul is sort of a misogynist, he hates women. No, he's dealing with a specific group of women who are causing problems, and he's saying, by the way, you know, you think you know a lot because you've been listening to these false teachers. Just remember that Eve was deceived. You were being deceived. Uh, you need to be careful. Now, Before he deals, before we deal with the specifics regarding the widows and the elders, I would point out that in both sections, there are two areas of concern. The first is taking care of them. And I would say financially, materially. He talks about taking care of those who are widows, who are really in need. Those who are widows indeed. And then, for the elders. And, He quotes that passage that I've mentioned a number of times. I wish he would have picked another proof text, if you wish, that uh, you're not to muzzle the ox. That means you're supposed to pay those who minister to you. But that's what he deals with first. And then he spends the bulk of his time on an impartial reproof of those who are sinning. And in both sections, I would say the real urgency is the second part. Yes, he wants widows to be taken care of. He wants teaching elders to be taken care of. But let's deal with the real problem. Let's deal with the real issue. And that is that sin has come into the church and the various house churches in Ephesus, and it must be dealt with. If you look at verses 3, 4, 8, and 16, he deals with caring for those who are widows in need. And then in verses 5 through 7 and 9 and 10, he tells us how to identify real widows, if you wish. It, starts, it stands in stark contrast to what he writes in verses 11 through 16 about the younger widows. Now, I'm convinced, this is my opinion, that Paul is not setting us a template. He isn't saying to us, this is what all churches at all time in all places, this is; these are the qualifications of a true widow versus a younger widow. Rather, he is dealing with a specific set of problems in the church in Ephesus, and he's trying to correct the problem. And in doing so, he passes on to us what I would call the tenth principle for passing the truth on to the next generation. There are two parts to it. We are to care for, we are to take care of those who are in need. But we are not to do so blindly. The idea of caring for widows has deep roots in the Old Testament, and usually it's found in very—it's put in negative terms as opposed to need to take care of widows. Exodus 22: Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. And Deuteronomy 24: Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. In Isaiah chapter one, stop doing wrong learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And then perhaps my favorite, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. This is how God defines himself, how he describes himself from Psalm 68. And we see that this continues in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 6, Uh in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In other words, the widows are supposed to be taken care of. That the church just seemed to intuitively know because of the Old Testament. And apparently some were being neglected. And so the apostles say, listen, you, you guys need to take care of this. Pick out seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit, who have wisdom, and they will be the ones in charge of this. And in fact, they choose seven such men. In James's letter, which is probably one of the earliest epistles in the New Testament, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It is clear in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, that widows are to be cared for. But Paul wants to make something else quite clear. There are to be qualifications for those who are to be helped. Those who are really in need, verse number three. Those who are really in need and left alone, verse number five. Not those who have others who can provide for them. Just a side note in verse number eight. Uh, Paul inserts, I think, a powerful verse, anyone who does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He continues in verse number six, that those who live for pleasure are not to be provided for by the church. And then he says those who are over the age of 60, well known for good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints and helping those in trouble. And then he says, not younger widows. Well, we've already seen in chapter four that Paul says to Timothy, don't let people look down on your youth. And at that point, Timothy is about 35 years old. So when Paul says younger widows, where is the cutoff? Where is that line between older and younger widows? I find it interesting that he says that younger widows, if they're not careful, they're going to want to go off and get married. And then he says they should, in fact, get married. Younger widows, are counseled; they are counseled to marry and to have children and to manage their home. Therefore, give no opportunity for slander. And apparently this is the problem in the church in Ephesus. If you can imagine, you have house churches throughout that city. You have elders teaching and elders in each of these houses. And in some of these house churches, some guys have gone off track and they are teaching false doctrine. And the people who seem most attracted to the false teaching are the younger widows. Um, as to why that is, uh, I, I would only speculate, and so I prefer, prefer not to do that. But apparently in Ephesus, this is what is happening. You have men who are false teachers, and you have younger widows, women who are following this false teaching. And in this one chapter, Paul seeks present to Timothy, you need to take care of those who are in need, but you should not do it blindly. In other words, if you have a man who is a false teacher, then the church should not be supporting this person. They should not be paying him if he's a false teacher. In the same way, if you have a widow in your church who runs around gossiping and is causing problems in the church, then this is not someone that the church should take care of as well. The problem needs to be corrected with the elders as well as with the widows. With the widows, Paul or as with the widows, when Paul begins to deal with the elders, he also talks about taking care of them. If you look at verses 17 and 18, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, And the worker deserves his wages. I find it interesting that he says that those who direct the affairs of the church well. So just because one is called elder or one is called overseer does not mean, oh, well, okay, this is someone we're going to pay because he, in fact, is the elder. No, this is someone who must be doing it well. And apparently there are men who are not doing it well. They are teaching false doctrine. So if you look at verse 19, he then turns to the problem. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. And then verse verse 24, the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. The Lord willing, we will look at this next Sunday. In this chapter, this difficult and puzzling chapter, I think we find two principles that we are to take to heart in our own lives and then prepare to pass on to the next generation. First of all, we are to recognize each other as family and to treat one another accordingly. Now, some of us come from a tradition where this is very overt, uh, that people are not simply called by their names, but their brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, and so Um that's fine. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are treating them as you should. Uh, those who are older are to be shown respect. Those who are younger are to be treated with respect as well. And I, I must tell you that I think culturally for us that this is more difficult than perhaps it's been for others in other places, in other cultures. In other cultures where it is ingrained in children that they are to respect their elders um, we we don't do that necessarily um, in this culture. And so when we say in the church of God, we are all one, there's no class differences, there are no gender differences, uh, ethnic differences, no differences. But you are to treat others with respect, the older and the younger. It just seems somewhat strange but I'm convinced that it is biblical, that we are in fact to treat each other with respect. And that age is, in fact, something that comes into play. Then the second principle is that we are to care for. We are to take care of those who are truly in need. But we are not to do so blindly. I don't think that this is a stretch. This, this, this seems very natural. If, in fact, we are to treat each other as family then if someone in my family is in need, then I want to be there to help them. In the same way, in the church, in the congregation, we are to take care of those who are in need. But let's not just throw money around. Let's not just say, okay, here, we're going to help, we're going to help. If you have someone who's teaching false doctrine, then this is not someone the church should support. If you have someone that the church is helping who is doing things that should not be done, uh, then the church needs, if you wish, to stop that support. I actually think the second part, that's down the road a bit for some. It's the first part that we really need to take to heart, that we are, in fact, to care for those who are in need. Again, our society, why should we help people when, in fact, the state will do it? The government is there. There are agencies who will take care of those who are in need. Well, we are the family of God. We are the household of God. We are to take care of those who are in need. But not to do so blindly. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for your word, and yet confess in the same breath that sometimes it is difficult. It sounds so foreign, so harsh. In many ways, it sounds very un American. Help us to see that we are to treat each other with respect. We are brothers and sisters, after all. We are one in Christ. And yet, there is to be a recognition of those who are older and those who are younger. We are brothers and sisters. Those who are older are like our parents, our fathers and our mothers. May we acknowledge that and recognize it. And then may we see that we have obligations to help each other. But not to do so blindly. Paul says things that are difficult for us to understand. Perhaps that we might be tempted to write off as cultural or simply corrective at the time that he wrote it. um, The reality is, we are to help, and we are to do so wisely, not blindly. I thank you for this congregation, for your work in their lives, for their generosity and willingness to share. May we, as your people, pass this on to the next generation may our children learn that we are to help those who are in need and that in fact we are the family of God, the household of God I thank you that you called us together today to worship you may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place we pray this in Jesus name Amen.